2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel 6, 14. Let's open up with a bang. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And the people said, oh, that was so weak. <laughs> it's like, uh, are we allowed to amen that? Uh, let's try it again. 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. That's a priestly garment. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house, and David returned to bless his household. He's going to bring the, the celebration home with him. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you, you got to read this the way she said it, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Welcome home, honey. <clears throat> And David said to Michael, watch this, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, verse 23 is not funny. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is kind of like a happy zone for people that are celebratory and outwardly expressive in their worship. I love this. I love this passage. Few things are more pathetic than an almost 50-year-old white man dancing on the front row. So I don't get to do it outwardly like I want to. I heard David Slyker say in a message from KC recently, he said, um, hey, old white guy's dancing. It's not that awesome. <laughs> you know, truth be, but sometimes you get a case of the can't help it and you get like David and you're like, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what it looks like. I know I don't have any rhythm, but I think the Lord's okay with that. I'm going to roll. And so, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I wasn't asking for permission, but I appreciate the encouragement. But we love this passage of Scripture because it, it, it is a, a check against a critical and religious spirit as displayed by Michael. Now, having said that, I want you to know, Worship of the living God is not anything goes wherever you are. And, you know, it's not just a carte blanche invitation to you do you no matter what it looks like or who's in the way. That's not really the, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. 
So when we come together and worship, there's, you know, there's got to be some discernment of the Holy Spirit about the big picture that's taking place. But this is not happening in a church on a Sunday in the 21st century. This is, this is Israel. These are the people of God. And what they were doing was bringing back the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to let it find its permanent lodging place, at least semi-permanent, before the temple was built, in the tabernacle of God. The Philistines had stolen the presence of God, if I can say it that way, the Ark of God. They had stolen it decades before when Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were running the tabernacle and they were, Eli was negligent and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were decadent. They were really immoral priests and God judged them. The Philistines came in, stole the Ark of God. God plagued the Philistines for, for stealing it. And so they sent it back to Israel on a cart pulled by an ox and it ended up in the house of a guy named Abinadab. So Abinadab had the Ark of the Covenant on his property for the better part of 20 years, a long time. And so there came that time where David was now king over a unified kingdom, and he said, we've got to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem. We've got to have that, that covenant treasure here with us. And his desire was to go and get the ark out of the house of Abinadab. And so he did it, but David made a mistake. David did it according to zeal, but not according to knowledge. And David, in his hastiness, set up a way to bring the ark the best way he thought he could do it. But what he wasn't aware is that the law of God prescribed exactly how the ark was to be transported. And David set up a system to bring it to Israel, to Jerusalem, that wasn't consistent with what was revealed in Deuteronomy 4. And so when they were bringing the ark back, there was a guy named Uzzah, and Uzzah was riding with the ark, and it hit some rough terrain. And Uzzah wanted to stabilize the ark, and so he put his hand on it, and boom! The holiness of God struck him down, struck Uzzah down. Now here's what the Bible said, because you gotta, you got to realize this. That was the ultimate buzzkill, because they were celebrating they were happy, they were singing, they were getting ready to you know, bring the ark back. It was a monumental moment, two decades in the making, and God said, I appreciate your zeal, but you will honor me, honor me according to what I have written, and God killed the party. And the Bible says that David was displeased at God. Now, before I even get into Michael, here's the thing that I love about David. David got blindsided by a circumstance that God facilitated that David didn't ask for, David didn't want, and it made David look bad. So David got humbled when Uzzah got killed. David names this place the breach of Uzzah. He felt like there was a breach that something got broken and snapped and it hurt his heart. And so for three months, David is back home and they parked the ark in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. And as the ark was there in Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom started getting ridiculously blessed. How many of you know if the presence of God is in your home and in your life, there's going to be the mark of God upon it, and you're going to experience some form of blessing over time. And so when David sees that, he says, okay, God doesn't hate me. God's still willing to bless. There's blessing coming. Okay, he gets with the people and said, we got to find out how God prescribed to bring the ark up. They find out, they read their Bible, they read what is our Deuteronomy 4, and they follow the instructions of God perfectly. Quick side note, zeal is awesome, but a zeal according to knowledge ends up hurting people. 
And so we, we need both. We don't just need passion. We need some precision. We don't need just the Spirit. We need the Word. And we don't have to ever allow those two things to compete because they both come from the same source. And so when David was bringing up the ark the second time, it was celebration. They were sacrificing, they were worshiping, they were doing all of this stuff. And this is where we see God, excuse me, David's response to God's discipline. What would David do after God put a shutdown on David's first attempt? Here's what it says. It says, it was told the king, King David, verse 12, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. So the blessing was on Obed and all his material possessions because of the ark of God. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't something else. It was God's presence resulting in blessings, both spiritual and material, upon Obed-Edom. So David then knows he can bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Notice the rejoicing. Friends, listen. An offended spirit has to be dealt with before we can rejoice. If we are offended at what God has allowed in the past, at what God has fostered, facilitated, or even what God did by way of discipline or instruction, if we feel that God has done something inequitable against us and we allow that to sit there, I'm going to tell you, a bitter seed will become a bitter weed. And it will sprout and it will grow. And the writer of Hebrews said, when that thing roots down in us, it defiles everything. So David was wise. David was upset because he didn't understand what God was doing, but he pulled out the seed before it took root. And the Bible says three months later, it's about three months' time, they're now bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, into Jerusalem, and David is leading the procession in joy. Uh, I have, uh, there's other pastors in the room and you that have served in pastoral uh, kind of context in local churches on the mission field. Um, you've met people that are, Beautiful people, gifted people, experienced people, but they are perpetually on the shelf because they're bitter people. And the Lord, it's not his pattern to ongoingly use bitter people, people that are bitter with God and people that are bitter with others. That's just not a vessel that he habitually anoints. And so David had to deal with the bitterness and he came back in. And I just want to say this before moving on to the next couple of verses. I I just want to say this. Um, when you confess that you've been angry, upset, or hurt with God, he's not surprised at that confession. And I know like, we, we, we're like super spiritual people. We're like spiritual on steroids. We are the bionic super people, super spiritual people. And we, we'd like to say, yeah, man, spiritual people never really wrestle with that stuff with God. Uh, I'm going to promise you that there, if your journey elongates itself, there's going to be times where you will think A and God will be heavily doing B. And you'll be saying, <clears throat> we're doing A. And God will say, that's cute. We're actually doing B. And you'll say, hey, I think we're doing A. And God will say, I'm telling you, I love you. B is better. And you will have to make a choice. And some people just say, I'm going to hang out with A until he comes over and starts blessing A. And he doesn't do it. And they get bitter. And they get hard. And they stay so committed to what they thought he should do, they, they actually miss out on what he is doing. And so David chose not to do that. So follow me a little bit further down into this text. This is where it gets fun. I like this. Um, I, please remember this. Um, I... 
before I get into this, because maybe this will help some of you, you might be visiting, maybe you're watching this live stream, and you, you, you might assume Jeff's just one of those crazy, kooky, charismatic guys. Probably grew up in the stuff, doesn't have any discipline, it's just kind of spiritually messy and all that, no order, no... Di- I was saved and spent the first 1994 to 2015, 16, 94 to 16 saved, pastoring a fundamental Baptist church. Fundamental. They took all the fun out of fundamental. I mean, it was just, I mean, that, just kidding. Come on, unclench, lighten up. I used to be one. I can say that. They, and, and so literally... We added a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is scowling. And so it was, it was one of those kind of environments where our worship and our expression of our faith was very, very different. It's not saying we weren't worshiping, but we were afraid of liberty. We were afraid of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We assumed that anybody that got their worship groove on in a service when 90% of the other people weren't, we assumed they're showboating it and just want attention. So we were critical in our spirits. So why, you, why am I telling you that? Well, it's a precursor because I'm about to celebrate the celebration of David in these verses, and it's just because um, I feel like I lost a lot of years before I, I allowed myself to actually enter into the joy of the Lord. And so David's celebration in God's presence is found in verses 14 through 20. And notice how free he was to celebrate God. Verse 14 says, he danced before the Lord with all his might. Just let your Bible mean what it says. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod, which was a priestly garment. He wasn't wearing his kingly robes. So David and all the house of Israel, don't miss that. That's going to come back into play in a minute. All the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord. Now notice what everybody was doing. They were shouting, and there was the sound of the horn. So there was this massive celebration with the celebratory shouts and the sound of the shofar emanating in a celebration that was conducive to that kind of sound being blasted, and the people were shouting, and their king, their king, their leader, was dancing before the Lord. He wasn't doing what a lot of us do. He wasn't doing the... (laughs) That wasn't what he was doing. I'm not going to do what he was doing because... Oh, no. Y'all need to repent. Y'all need to repent. (laughs) I would do it, but I can't. But the point being, it wasn't David just kind of, you know, keeping time. He was was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Why? Because before he was a king, he was a worshiper. And when he became king, he was still primarily a worshiper. He was a musician. He was a songwriter. He was a worshiper of the Lord that God chose to be the king. But I can guarantee you this, if David had never been given the throne, he still would have been a happy worshiper of God. He never sold out his heart for his position. And so he danced before the Lord with all his might, and there's just something about it. When the people see the king dancing, they all just got liberated and got free in the spirit and made much of God. Why? Because it was the the exclamation point 
on a 20-year battle that came and started when Israel was backslidden, when the priesthood was corrupt, when the people of God were doing whatever they wanted to do in their own eyes. That's what started all of this when Eli and Hophni and Phinehas kind of made merchandise of the things of God. Judgment came. The people repented, and now David's saying, we have been restored fully. The Ark of the Covenant is back. And so it was not a light moment. He lived in the awareness of God down in verse number 14. Again, it says he danced before the Lord. Just note that. That's important. He was dancing with an audience primarily of one, before the Lord. He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings unto the Lord. Those burnt offerings were literal animal sacrifices that would be wholly consumed, and they were a picture from the law of a complete atonement for sin. And so as they brought the ark forward, they, they would make sacrifices the whole way from the house of Obed-Edom unto the uh, tent of tabernacle. They're making sacrifices. So David's awareness is on the Lord. He's fixated. His eyes are on the Lord, and he can't help but to celebrate and worship, but it's a beautiful thing. He's got the liturgy of the animal sacrifices and the liberty of the inward worship being expressed through dance and shouting and trumpets and horns. That's the way we need to be, people, with reverence and celebration. And here's the thing. In churches, we usually have to pick one or the other. It's like, well, if we're really reverent, there'll be no dancing. There'll be no shouting. There'll be no enthusiasm because thou shalt not be enthused is the 11th commandment. <laughs> and, but, and, and then you've got people that are celebratory and they think any kind of order or structure are kind of, you know, we're, we're actually moving together towards a point so everybody doesn't get the freelance, that we're coming together. And, and they think, well, that just kind of quenches the spirit. I kind of like to do my own thing. Well, you can do your own thing, not in corporate worship, though. That, that literally, we have to move together. And so we actually have to think about our worship. And I, I get it. Listen, I'm telling you, I'm liberated. I'm free. But if my freedom ever becomes an unnecessary stumbling block to other people worshiping, I'm probably not thinking right. And so that's the dynamic of corporate worship. Nobody gets to do everything they love, but everybody gets to do a little of what they love. And if we can just be selfless like that, we can have worship services that invite the ark of God, so to speak, to manifest himself right here in our presence. And so he lived in this awareness of the Lord, and then he operated in this joyful generosity down in verse 18. It says, so David finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And again, those are animal sacrifices. And he blessed the people. He was a leader that, that loved the Lord and was fixated on the Lord, but he also wanted to be a blessing to those that called him king. And so he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, men and women. They got some cake. They got a steak. And they got a, like a little dessert, a little cake of raisins. They got a, some bread, some meat, a cake of raisins. And everybody went home with something. And everybody departed, everybody to their own house. And then the king says, all right, I've served the people. I want to go and bless my own family. Let's just stop here for a minute. I think when we are pursuing the Lord and aligned with the Lord and worshiping the Lord and seeking his face and enjoying his presence and giving expression to that as he has wired us and cooperating when he stretches us out of our comfort zone. When we're really in his presence, one of the end results is going to be that we're going to want to bless others. 
That, that the Lord actually fosters a generous spirit. We'll be generous with our time, generous with our forgiveness, generous with our acts and our abilities to serve, generous with our income. We're going to become like the one that we're worshiping. So David, in just like a micro shot of that, all of a sudden he's worshiping the Lord who has lavished David and lavished Israel. And David says, I want to be like you. I'm going to bless the people. And so I don't know how many people were there that day, but everybody went home with a steak, a crescent roll, and a piece of raisin cake. Everybody, I'm hungry. I, I'm, oh. And then David says, now I'm going to go and bless my household. I'm going to go and bless my family. Before moving on to this kind of sad scene, let me, let me just say, joy in the Lord will inevitably birth generosity in us. I'm not trying to get into your wallet. We already took up the offering. I want you to hear me in this. Joy in the Lord turns you inside out. It turns you inside out. Then he's on the inside. And when we are operating in the joy of Jesus, when we're remaining grateful that our sins are forgiven and our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that we're promised a, a co-heir status with Jesus, and we're going to rule and reign with the Son of God when we are living in that kind of reality, though we're challenged and we're harassed in life and we're, you know, life gets problematic and we're burdened. I get all of that. But when we stay anchored and centered in this one named Jesus and how good he is to us, the end result is that we're, we're, we're going to take on his nature to be givers. We don't hide our lives. We don't guard our lives. We don't preserve our lives. We don't advance our own kingdom or magnify our own name. We're actually looking to find our purpose in him. And then when we find our purpose in him, he goes, I want you to go and spread that around. You're salt. And I'm going to take my hand. I'm going to use you as salt. I'm going to shake you out and season the culture that you're living in. That's what he wants to do with you. Some of you, by the way, are flowing in that. And that's why you're being challenged, by the way. The enemy hates you. I mean, he, he doesn't really have to have a reason to hate you other than you're made, made in the image of God. He hates you for that. But then you had the audacity to believe in Jesus, and he lost you. The enemy lost you. Jesus went and plundered the enemy, snatched you out of his hand, cleaned you up, put his name on you, said, this one's mine for all of eternity. And now every time the devil looks at you, he sees a defeat. And so he hates you. And then now you're going about and helping others escape the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, the clutch of the enemy. And he's not going to let that go uncontested. And so some of you are struggling in this season right now, not because you're out of the will of God, not because you're, you've done something wrong, but you're exactly where you need to be. And the enemy is fighting you, literally like the devil. He's coming hard after you. That was David's story. Look at what's about to happen. This is David's like one of his peak moments in his reign and look at where the problem comes from it doesn't come from some renegade punk in Israel it doesn't come from some you know somebody that didn't get their name in the bulletin on some on the Sabbath day it's it's, it's not from anybody like that it's it's from his wife So let, let's just go there. Look at Michael's bitter heart get revealed. Miss it, man. She didn't know on that day that that would be her preserved testimony in the Bible for all of time. But I'm going to tell you, it didn't begin in her heart that day. This was just the day that the volcano let the lava out. 
but the lava was already there. It was always inside of her. Let me give you a few things about her that are exposed in this. By the way, you need to know this about Michael. She's the daughter of the previous king whom David replaced. And she was a lot like her dad. And her dad was an ungodly, paranoid, defensive, fleshly man who, who always cared more about his name and his reputation and what people thought about him than he ever did about the Lord. And Michael grew up under that kind of leadership and Saul gave his daughter to marry David before David was king. And I personally, you can disagree with me if you want, I don't think she ever got over the fact that her dad died in a state of, of shame and that his glory did not continue on. He died in shame. He committed suicide. And I don't think Michael ever got over it. And so when she saw David, she probably saw what her father could have been and knew he would never be. And somewhere along the line, deep, deep resentment for her husband got embedded in her heart. And on this day, it came out. So it says this, um, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. Now, now hold on a minute, because I, I just read that all Israel was celebrating the ark. But Michael was on, in the palace, probably looking out an elevated view, isolated, not participating. She's being the queen and not a daughter of God. She's being the queen mother of Israel and not a daughter of God. And so while the entire covenant people were celebrating the presence of God, her husband leading the procession, she valued her dignity over her liberty so in other words she had made up her mind I am who I say I am and I am the queen and I am dignified and I'm not getting out on the streets with the common folk and I'm not going to be a fool like my husband down there dancing around and she's going to share some thoughts with him later here, here it's just a, a, a small picture of what a religious spirit can look like a religious spirit is pre-offended. Just note that. It doesn't always have to be a religious spirit. It could be a cultural spirit of arrogance. It could be classism. It could be racism. It could be a whole host of different things. It ultimately is that, that nasty part of, of the potential part of a human's heart where he or she says, you know, I'm actually better than everybody else. Whether religiously better or racially better or culturally better or financially better, whatever. It's just that it's a spirit of snoot. It's just kind of like, <laughs> and there she is. She's looking out a window. It's almost as if she doesn't want to be associated with those folks, but in case God does something, she doesn't want to miss. And so she's watching out the window, preserving her dignity and denying her worship. And so she also chose judgment over joy. She saw, she's looking out the window, and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord Watch this. This is what the Bible says. I'm not, I'm not mischaracterizing Michael. She despised him in her heart. Why? Because she's watching him dance and leap and worship. And her conclusion is that's something despicable that he's doing. And we're going to find out later as she unpacks it in just a few sentences. Her basic thought is, is that kind of display of whatever it is he's doing is not fit for the king. Hey, my daddy never would have done it that way. 
Woe unto the man that's had to hear that from his wife. Good night alive. My daddy wouldn't have done that way. And all the husbands have been trained in, in man school to say, I ain't your daddy. Some free marital counseling there. In essence, that's what David says here in a minute, but, but watch this. What's got to be going on in somebody's heart to where, A, they can't recognize true worship, or B, if they do recognize it, they resent it? What's up with that? Let me tell you why it's there in somebody's heart. Because they can't worship. And they're offended that somebody else might be truly worshiping in God, uh, God in ways that they themselves have never been motivated to worship God. And so up rises the bitterness, the jaundiced spirit of Michael is starting to percolate a little bit. And it's not a, it's not a um, subtle Hebrew word. It says she despised him. She hated her husband. Why? Because he's a worshiper. And he's a freed up worshiper. And she's not freed up. She's bitter. Why is she bitter? I think it has everything to do with David replacing her dad. So go a little further. I know this is yucky, but yucky it shall be. Verse 20. This is what amazes me. David returns to bless his household. He's got the wine. He's got the bread. He's got the beef. Sorry to all you vegans, but he's got it. He's coming home. He's got the raisin cake frosting and ice cream and sprinkles. Sorry, sorry, I went somewhere. But. So he's coming home to bless his family, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Now watch this. She wouldn't get up and come outside to worship and rejoice, but she'd get up and come outside and meet him on the porch to rebuke him. Isn't that incredible? It's that critical spirit. You've got, some of you got people like that in your life. I'm sorry for you. I, I mean that. I, I am absolutely sorry for you because I've been there. I spent pastoral seasons there where people, God help me, I need to say this in the right spirit, but I'm not going to pretend it's otherwise. People that won't give, they won't serve, they won't pray, they won't worship, they won't do it, but they'll attend that quarterly business meeting to tell you the 10 things that they hate about their church. That's just not Jesus. The critical spirit is a quencher of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never anoints our complaining. The Lord does not elevate the grumbling heart. The Lord will never graduate the murmuring spirit in somebody. The Lord says, I've got a cross that you're supposed to be carrying and following me. And part of what I want you to nail to that cross is your own bitter spirit. That's the only way. You don't put a leash on a bitter spirit. You crucify it. You kill it. You say, well, Jeff, how do we do that? Well, repentance and then intentional gratitude. Because I'm going to tell you, we all, all Christians, we, get, we, we have right now way more than we deserve. Way more than we deserve. I hadn't told this story in a long time. If you've hung out at Meadow and 
Newbridge for years. You've heard me tell this. But when I got saved, my boss led me to Jesus. And about a year after, about nine months after I got saved, I had um, an annual review. And man, when I got saved, I became a model employee because I took my Christianity to work with me. And I was a terrible employee prior to that. So he had shepherded me in both realities. And so I knew I had been a real good employee for a total of nine months. And so review time came and they gave me like a, a, just a, a little tiny little raise. I remember I was mad. So I got with my spiritual mentor who happened to be my boss. I was like, hey, dude, I haven't called in sick in nine months. He's like, yeah, you used all your sick time in the first three months. It's like, well, moving on to bigger and better things, sir. <laughs> I said, I've really worked hard. I've been over backwards. I deserve a bigger raise. Now, he was my boss, but he was also my spiritual father. And he looked at me. He had a southern drawing. He goes, you deserve a raise, do you? I said, that's right. He goes, boy, all you deserve is hell. <laughs> he was right. That's all we really deserve. And aren't you glad that Jesus took that off of you? Can we live in that place of gratitude where we're not entitled? We're not rocking around feeling like we've gotten ripped off, but because our names are written in the Lamb Book of Life and we have God living inside of us and shepherding us and we have all of eternity and there are treasures evermore at his right hand and all the manifold promises of God. And so Michael missed all of that. David walks in to bless her and she gets up. She wouldn't get up to worship, but she'd get up to nag and she got in his face. And here's what she says. How the king of Israel honored himself today, that's sarcasm, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. In other words, my maids, don't, I'm not being irreverent, saw your backside today when you were dancing in that priestly garment. They saw you naked, David, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She took his heartfelt, uninhibited, passionate worship, and she focused on the fact that he was undignified, broke decorum, likely, there's not a polite way to say it, flashed inadvertently many as he twirled around and danced. That's, that's, that's not good. That's not something that we applaud, but here's the deal. She's the only one that said anything about it. You know why? Because it looks like everybody else was completely focused on the Lord. And so she got up and she crushes him, man. She calls him a vulgar, um, shameless man. What did God call David? What did God say about David? He's the man. And Michael is so far away from the heart of God, she's like, you're just one of those vulgar, lewd, shameless men in the street. So I know what time it is. I'm, you're, you really are. You're free to go. I don't. I, David actually does something that sometimes we're not supposed to do. This is a case where David actually gives a defense and he does it 
as under the Lord, just like he danced under the Lord, just like he sang under the Lord, just like he played under the Lord, just like he killed Goliath under the Lord, just like he tolerated Saul's insanity as under the Lord. David's going to defend himself as under the Lord. So let me move through this quickly. He defends his devotion, and this is what he says to her. He says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all your father's relatives, above all his house, and he appointed me a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. David's saying this. As she's standing there, you, you can picture this, man. She's just laser-eyeing him. She just... And he just looks at her and he says, Hey, baby, it wasn't for you. Yeah, I actually wasn't doing any of that for you. I'm, I may be unpacking this a little. He's like, I'm really sorry you're offended. But you, know, you wouldn't have seen all that stuff. You've been down on the ground walking by me, worshiping by me, singing by me. It wouldn't have bothered you because you would have been in the presence. But you were up looking out the window. And that's why you feel the way you do because you're detached from the presence of God. And your words evidence that. He says it wasn't before you. And he goes on to say, um, like he's not bowing to her bitterness. You know how sometimes a bitter person who operates and traffics in guilt and wants to accuse and make you feel shame, you know how powerful that is when it hits you? And our temptation is, go, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. I'll never worship enthusiastically again. I, I will never lose my, my religion again in the presence of, of Yahweh. I'll never do it again. I'm sorry you're offended. I'm sorry about that. Here, here's something I'll tell you about the religious spirit. It's never satisfied. You can fix what they were offended at the first time, but they have five more things that's coming your way. He says, and I will celebrate before the Lord. <laughs> he just says, I was celebrating before the Lord. Then you came and gave me your venomous vomit. And I just want to let you know, as I get this stuff off of me that you just spewed on me, I just want you to know I'm going to be doing it again. I will be celebrating before the Lord again. He is worthy of my ongoing celebration. Baby, you have not seen anything yet. We just got started this morning. Now, some people don't think a man should talk to his wife that way. Uh, I will just submit to you, she's not being David's wife. She's being Saul's daughter. And so David then takes it up a notch. Come on, David. I want this marrow in my bones. Hallelujah. I will make myself yet more contemptible. <laughs> Y'all thought I was making up that last part. He's literally saying, you haven't seen anything. I'm going to turn it up a notch, sister. And he says, and I will be abased in your eyes. He says, I know you're going to look down on me. He, he's acknowledging, he's like, I already knew you despised me before I danced this morning. I'm going to keep on dancing, and I know you're going to continue to despise me. And he says, but those female servants you mentioned, they'll hold me in honor because they're of the same spirit that I'm of. You see, we can, we can spend all our time trying to appease the goats but to do that, you starve the sheep. And what David said, man, this, I'm feeling the boldness this morning. I just called a bunch of people goats. I don't know who they are, but. 
Man, the, the, the goats, that's just the way they're going to be. They're, they're just going to, they're going to tear into everything, mess up everything. David's a shepherd, not a goat herder. And now he's the king, and he says this. He says, I'll receive the honor from the humble people, and I won't miss a beat about you not honoring me from your position of religious supremacy. And so the sad footnote, worship team, you can come on up, please. The sad footnote is this. In verse 23, Michael reaped from her seed of bitterness. Now look at this. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Very quickly here. Not every inability to be unable to conceive has anything to do with judgment from God. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is likely this. After that day, David said, I'm never touching her again. You can make it some supernatural curse on her womb. I don't know about that. But I guarantee you this. You talk about an intimacy breaker. What she did to her husband and David literally just not bowing to her bitter heart and bitter spirit. It is highly likely that the natural process by which children are conceived never happened between those two again. And so Michael retained her position as queen, but as far as we can tell, she never stepped in to being a daughter of God because the barrenness chased her all the days of her life. So the spiritual application of that from Michael is this, and it's not just females, it's all of us. A bitter religious seed that is not dealt with will become a weed. A weed that is not dealt with will become a bitter garden, and the garden's gonna feed everything in your life. And so what do we need to do? We need to repent today. I know Christians don't like to repent because we, don't th we thought we did that when we got saved. Well, you did. But if you're ever going to be sanctified, if I'm ever going to be sanctified, we, we just, the, the first repentance was the first repentance. Repentance unto repentances. So when the Holy Spirit comes and deals with something in our heart, we have a choice to protect it from what the Holy Spirit is saying and nurse that bitterness in that wound. Or we can just agree with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't think I'm like Michael but I don't have to be to know that I've got a little seed in my heart that I need the omnipotent hand of God to come and remove. And Lord, some of those things are now weeds and I need you to pull them out strong because I got names and I got faces and I got calendar events and I got a, I got a file and I got a hard drive full of all the things that have been done to me. And Lord, I, I just keep pulling them and using the RAM memory to bring them forth and I'm rehearsing all these things. Lord, I don't want to lose my joy again. I don't want to forfeit the blessing of God. I, I miss your presence, Lord. Lord, I'm inhibited. I'm shut down. My feet might not dance, Lord, but I want my spirit to dance. I want my eyes to stream tears of gratitude and my mouth to give expressions of joy and honor and gratitude and peace and love. I want to be generous with other people. I want to come out of my high castle and stop looking at life through a narrow window. And I want to get in the street with you and your people. And I want to make much of your son. And I want to glorify him. And I want to praise him. I want to dance before him. I want to sing to him. And I'm tired of caring what everybody says. I want to release myself to you, Lord. And the Lord says, I've been waiting to hear that. My daughter, 
my son, will you come? Let's stand to our feet.